All right, go ahead and open up to Ephesians. So we're going to be starting a new series um, this morning. I don't know if you saw it on Facebook or not. If not, it's okay. You're here now. So um, I shared at the members meeting that the Lord has been kind of graciously leading me um, and, and reminding me of what our original purpose was when we planted New City Church. And, and he's kind of through that given me this understanding that we need to sort of refocus um, and, and to give a little bit more clarity about our purpose um, to remind us. Because there are a few of you who have been around for a long time here, but the majority of you haven't. And we, I praise God for that. But it's always good to be reminded of what our original purpose was. Um, so after spending a lot of time in prayer and writing a lot, um, we've come up with a new, um, a little clearer mission statement to help us remember. Because if we did a poll right now, probably very few would actually know what our mission statement has been since day one. And that's not your fault. I don't reiterate it enough, but it's also fairly lengthy and complex. But here's the new one. That we exist to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel, in community, and on mission. You see it on the sign all the time, gospel community and mission. You see it posted in here, gospel community and mission. This brings all of those in together with one clear directional purpose, to glorify God by making disciples. And we do that through the gospel, in community, and on mission. And what we want to do over the next several weeks is look at the individual components of that mission statement, and unpack them to show what our purpose actually is. And today we're going to be looking at the gospel. And so the big idea for where we're going to be heading today is this, that the gospel is the good news that we have been saved from death by grace through faith in Jesus and sent on mission to make disciples. And we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. And you are familiar with Ephesians 2 because we speak of Ephesians 2 almost weekly. But we wanted to just spend a, time to, a little bit of time together to unpack that, to see how it propels us to live through the gospel for the glory of God. And so I want to pray for us and we will begin to spend some time diving a little deeper into the gospel. So let's pray. Our Father, we come to this point where we open your word together and we are trusting that you will speak to us through the working of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, God, that even in this first message of this series, God, that you will work throughout this series to the praise of your glorious grace, that you will use it to um, re-encourage, reinvigorate us to live a life for you above all things. And I know that for each and every one of us, that looks different in our daily lives, and it brings its own challenges to, to sit certain things aside for the good of seeking and following you. But may you encourage us to put you first and foremost, and that the gospel would be the central theme of all of our lives. And so we ask God today that as we work through this passage of Ephesians 2, that you will 
show us the importance of the gospel, how it does change our lives and where it sends us, where it leads us from here. That it's not just a buzzword, that it is literally should be the very in the, entwined into the very fabric of our being. It should be in part of our DNA. That people would see us and they would hear gospel. That people would know that there is something radically different about the folks who call New City Church home. And so we ask God that your word would, as you tell us in Romans 12, renew our minds and set our lives on a path to give you glory. And so we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would bless the reading of your word, and that you would change our hearts radically with the gospel so that we would live for the gospel and through the gospel. It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, the very first thing we're going to see is really... A question, and that's where we'll be at today. We'll answer a set of questions. The first question we're going to answer is what is the gospel and why does it matter? Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, before we can begin to understand why the gospel is one of the core values of New City Church and why it's part of our mission statement, we must clarify what it is. We probably hear the word gospel a lot, especially today. It is a church buzzword, but we need to understand why it's a buzzword. We need to understand why we hear it all the time. And we need to understand clearly what it is. There are a lot of things attributed to being gospel that are not gospel. There are a lot of um, theological thoughts that are attributed to being gospel that are not true according to Scripture. So we need to see what the gospel is. And to do that, let's start with the root of the word. Gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which literally means good news. So the gospel is good news. And in a world seemingly filled with bad news, we all need good news. Ephesians 2, 1 again. And you were dead. Dead in what? Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were dead in sin. And to be completely honest, there are probably some of you here that still are. And maybe we want to bucket that and say, "Ah, I don't don't know if that's quite accurate. Well, let's look at Scripture. 
In Genesis 3, God creates, has already created all things. He's created Adam and Eve, and they're in the midst of the garden. And God had told them they had free reign on everything they wanted except for one tree, that they should not eat of that tree, because when they do, they will surely die. And Satan enters the picture, and he convinces them that they should rebel against God, that they could be as God, and they eat of the fruit. And at that moment, they are aware that something is drastically different. Sin had entered into their lives. Their lives were not what they once were. Paul follows that up with his teaching in Romans 5, that because of one man's sin, Adam, all have sinned. So we all inherit this sin nature. We are all sinners, right? Because of Adam's sin, we're all sinners. Every person ever born outside of one, Jesus, is born a sinner. It's who we are. How often do we see people, when we look at people, and we look at children especially, and we say, oh, how precious, how pure and innocent they are. If you're a parent, you know that's not the case, Right? They kick, they scream, they pitch a fit because they want their way. They want to be God. They want to be worshipped. That's what we do. That's our nature. And it's not just children. It's as we grow and we mature in life, it just manifests itself in different ways. We may not pitch a fit in the same way as we did as we were when we were extremely young, but we still have a way of doing that, right? I'm sure everybody in here has probably pitched a fit in adulthood at some point. And if you say you haven't, you're probably lying. But the reality is, is that because of Adam's sin, all have sinned, except for Jesus. That's why the virgin birth is so important. That's why Jesus had to be born in a supernatural way, because he was born without sin. But every person else, according to Romans 5 and also in Romans 3, are sinners. In Romans 3, Paul writes, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we talk about sin and we say, well, what is, you know, why is sin all that bad? Or, or we may try to justify what we do in our life and try to say it's not sin until we come to realize what we're comparing it to. We're comparing our lives to the glory of God, the holiness of God. And we might try to justify what we do by saying, oh, well, it's not as bad as what so-and-so is doing because, you know, what they're doing is pretty atrocious, but... I'll just do this on occasion, and it's really not all that bad. Until we put it up against the lens of the glory of God, and then we realize how wretched we truly are. I told you about the example that I heard a while back, and I thought it really speaks well to this, that if you look at a white lamb, you see a pure, precious, clean animal. But if you took that white lamb and you actually put it against a pure white backdrop, what do you notice? That pure white lamb is not so clean anymore. They're like yellow, right? And that's exactly what our lives are like. We think we got it all figured out, but when we compare it to the glory of God, we see a drastic difference. We sin against a holy God. 
And we were dead in sin. And again, some of us are still dead in sin. And there's no escape in the fact that we are all sinners. And Paul goes on in Romans 6 and he says, And the wages of that sin is death. The the result of that sin is death. Why? Why death? I mean, because again, maybe we're like, but we don't really do that bad of stuff. Might tell a little lie occasionally, you know, might, you know, fudge on our taxes a little bit. We might, you know, run through a stop sign, might speed a little. You know, those are not really terrible things. Well, the punishment is death. Death. Why? Again, because we're comparing our sin and ourselves to a holy God. And if we say that God is holy, if we say that God is righteous, then we also say that God is just. And if God is just, then God has to punish sin. And the full extent of punishment for sin is death. There is no other greater punishment than death, right? And so God, in His justice, in His righteousness, must punish sin. Otherwise, He would not be just. If he just come in one day and said, hey, well, we'll take, you know, this half of the room and, and, and this half of the room and we'll split it down the middle because it's definitely not split down the middle. We're not back row Baptists. We're side row Baptists in here because y'all really like that side. Um, so, so props to the people sitting on my right. Um, <laughs> just kidding. But if, if we split it down the middle of the room and we said, you know what, it, I don't care what you've done, y'all are Okay. Right? We're just going to overlook it, no big deal, but all of y'all over here, you still got to die. Would that be just? Absolutely not. Let's, let's get a little more real with it. Say you're at work one day and your spouse and your children are at home. And you get a phone call. And the phone call says that someone has come in and murdered your family. Once you get through the initial devastation and and you get into the legal process, right? And they have found evidence upon evidence upon evidence proving that one individual had done this heinous act. There's no doubt that we all want justice in that situation. And we sit in a courtroom, and there's no doubt about it that this individual is guilty. And the judge just simply looks and he says, I see all the evidence. It's clear that this individual has probably committed this crime. But I'm just going to give him a warning and let him go on about his business. Is there any justice in that? Not at all. The first thing we have to understand is how horrible our sin actually is. Not just the things we equate as horrible, but all sin. Any rebellion against God is wretched and punishable by death. God is just. And he must punish sin for what it is. And the scripture clearly shows that the wages of sin is death. 
And what we should understand is that we are all, every person in here, everyone is deserving of God's just punishment, death. The gospel, however, is that death does come because God is just. But instead of coming to us, you and me, it comes to Jesus. Isaiah 50, in Isaiah 53, it said it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? So that he could become the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And I know you've heard me and heard us say time and time again, quote, Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. And the reason you hear that over and over and over is because of this fact, that God knows you and God knows me. He knows the very depth of our lives. He knows the secrets that no one else knows. He knows the internal struggles. He knows the real sins that we struggle with. And if he knows them now, he knew them in eternity past. And yet Jesus goes to the cross knowing our sin. We just finished up the Gospel of John and we finished up on a picture of seeing how God through Christ had shown his love to Peter. In John 18, we saw Peter deny Jesus as Jesus was being put on trial. And at the end in John chapter 21, Jesus forgives Peter and he atones for Peter's sin and he encourages Peter. Jesus knew that Peter was going to betray him and he died for Peter regardless. Jesus knows each and every one of us and yet he dies in our place regardless. Jesus dies in our place for our sin. And that, folks, is why the gospel matters. See, because without the gospel of Jesus, without the good news of Jesus, and this is why it's good news. Without the good news, you and me, we're hopeless. There's no amount of Stuff you can do to save yourself from your sin. I mean, we hear it all the time, right? Hey, why don't you come to church with me? Man, i got to get my stuff straight before I can go to church. It's not possible. Or, or I need to go to, yeah, I, I know I need to go to, I need to be in church. I need to go more often. And I need to be doing the right things. I'm not going to argue with that, but that's not going to get you very far in by way of entrance of heaven or man I need to I need to tithe more I need to give more sacrificially yeah but that's not paying for salvation the only way to be saved from sin is Jesus that's why the gospel is good news Because he has done what you and I could not do for ourselves. And that is satisfy the wrath 
the justice of God. Someone had to die. Jesus became that someone. So that you and I could be set free from the penalty of death. And we are completely lost and we are eternally separated from God until Jesus totally saves us. He doesn't just save us for a period. He saves us for eternity. So when we come to Him and we put our faith and our trust in Him, we're doing just that. We're surrendering our lives to the only one who could save us. If I were caught in a riptide at the beach and I was drowning, and two boats pulled up, and one was orange and said Coast Guard, and one just looked like, you know, a little putt-putt boat going out trying to catch some fish, and they looked like they had no clue. And both of them said, I'm here to save you. Which one would I accept the, ra- the, the lifesaver from? Would I accept the ones that may or may not know what they're talking about? Or would I accept it from the one who absolutely is sure? They're trained to do that. And yet so often in our lives, we want to put our faith and our trust in ourselves and and in all these other means. But Christ has given his life to set us free. And when he saves us, we are secured. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can snatch us out of his hand. So what is the gospel and why does it matter? The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And how then does the gospel change us? See, because of our sin, we have no hope of salvation on our own. Hopefully we have that by now. That's the bad news. Have you ever felt completely hopeless? Like completely hopeless. Like without someone or, or something or, or God himself intervening, like you were done for. That's who we are. But it's not the end of the story. The bad news is we have no hope on our own. But look at verse 4. You know what? Let's read verses 1 through 3 again, just so we can understand how good verse 4 actually is. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were the children of Satan, basically. We're, We're children of disobedience. We are Broken, we are wretched, we are cursed. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We did the things that we wanted to do. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Which means we were broken. We were separated from God. We had no hope. Verse 4, but God. 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Again, this is that Romans 5.8 moment. That even though we were dead, God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. We were dead. But God. We were hopeless. But God. The greatest two words in Scripture. But God. He loved us. Even though he knew who we were. And he has displayed his mercy toward us in Christ. How? Because God poured out his wrath on his son instead of us. And through Jesus, he has made us alive together with Christ. Let's think about that for a minute. Dead, hopeless, worthless. Worthy of death, deserving of death. Nothing good within us. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead, even knowing who we were, knowing our faults, knowing our secrets, knowing our grave nature and our sin, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God pours out his just wrath on his son instead of us. was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he did. We're only a few weeks removed from Easter and what we learned was that even though it was the will of the Lord to crush his son and to kill his son, he did not stay dead. Jesus is alive. Three Days after the Son of God was put to death, God raised him in victory. Death had been defeated. Sin had been defeated. And death was dead. And here's the good news. That in Jesus' death, our debt is paid. And we have been raised together Made alive together with Christ. How is that even possible? How is it possible that one person could pay the sin of all of his people for all of time? How is that possible? 
How is it possible that someone else... Okay, so again, let's go back to our story. Say we, we, the judge actually does the right thing and he convicts that individual who slayed our family and he sentences him to death row. But then somewhere along the line, someone says, you know what, I think I'm going to take his spot, so let's just let him go. Jesus took our place. And God poured out his wrath on his son. How is that possible? Grace. For by grace you have been saved. What is grace? It's God giving us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve freedom. We don't deserve life. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. We don't deserve this. We do deserve death because of our sin. Because of our trespasses. But grace. And Jesus takes our sin on himself. And he bears God's wrath. He, he tastes death. Why? To save his people. To save his people. How are we changed by grace? How are we changed by the work of Christ? How are we changed by the gospel, the good news that Jesus has saved us when we could not save ourselves? I want to just point out two simple ways. First, if we surrender to Jesus, that means we've we've truly confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. We hadn't just gone through the motions at some point in our life, but we have truly seen the the depth and the depravity of our sin, and we've called out to God to save us, and we have trusted that Jesus' death has saved us. If we surrender to Jesus in that way, then we are redeemed, and we have a home in heaven. Our eternity is secure. But if not, if we haven't trusted Jesus in that way, heaven is not our home. Hell is. And it is real. And I don't want you to just hear hell and think of all the horror stories of, you know, fire and brimstone and weeping and gnashing of teeth and the smell of sulfur. Like, that's not what makes hell bad. What makes hell bad is that Christ isn't there. There is no more common grace that we receive on a daily basis. You know, we, we receive so much grace that we don't even realize And right now we have hope. Even you here today, if you've never truly trusted Jesus, you still have hope. Because you're alive. But there is coming a day, and it's a coming a lot quicker than you realize, when that hope will be gone. 
Like there are no second chances. Like this is the second chance right here, right now. If you are breathing, this is your time. But there is coming a day when the breath will leave your lungs and the, the life will leave your body and you spiritually will stand before God. And we will give an account of our life. And we have, if we have never truly trusted in the saving work of Jesus, there is no pleading out of that case at that point. But if we truly surrender to Jesus, then, then we are saved and our home is in heaven. And we have eternity to look forward to because Christ has paid the price in full. Secondly, if you have surrendered to Jesus truly, then we will live a life of gratitude. Because we're free to live under the goodness of grace. We're no longer shackled by sin and doubt and uncertainty. Our sins have truly been washed white. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, when we trust in Jesus to save us, you know what God doesn't see anymore? Sin-stained people. He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus. And again, we have to understand that this is the work of Christ, right? It's, it's not our work. He, he's, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. See, you might be different than me, but if I had the power and the ability to save myself, if I could be that good, guess who would know about it? Everybody, because I would let you know that I was good enough to do it. But I can't. I can't boast about my salvation because I did not attain it. I didn't earn it. And neither have you. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. That it's why, that's why it's, we have been saved by grace through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why? So, and it's not a result of work. Why? So that no one may boast. Later on, Paul says that we should let our boast be in Jesus and Jesus alone. It is Jesus who does the work. It's Jesus who gives us life. It's Jesus who appeases the wrath of God. It's Jesus who saves. And when we understand that it's through Jesus that we have been saved and we realize that we have been washed clean. Does that then like, let us have a license to sin? Do we just continue to do the things we've always done? Absolutely not. And how fitting that the song we sang this morning was directly from Galatians 2.20. Because I have in my notes, Galatians 2.20. Where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is no longer Paul in the way that we know Paul. Paul is no longer a sin-stained, broken individual. Paul is a righteous son of God. That's how God sees him. And he says, because of that, it's no longer me who is living, but it's Christ who is living in me. That is, it's Christ putting himself on display in my life. And that's a pretty powerful statement when we consider who Paul was and what Paul had done. Paul had spent his life and his career doing everything possible to destroy the church of Jesus. If you remember Acts 7, it was Paul who was standing there who oversaw the stoning of Stephen. Like, if we have to, we're going to extinguish the church of Jesus at all costs. And if that means killing people who claim the name of Christ, that's what we're going to do. And Paul was on his way to Damascus to do just that. And God knocked him off of a donkey. And God saved him. And instead of continuing his work as this individual who is trying to destroy the church of Christ, he goes on to becoming one of the greatest missionaries building Christ's church that the world has ever known. He's saying it's Christ who lives in me. And, and Paul wasn't doing it to make much of himself. He goes on, he says, In the life I now live in the flesh, that means the earthly life I'm living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does he mean that I live by faith? That means he is trusted in the saving work of Christ. That the work he's doing, he's not doing it to attain the love of Jesus. He's doing it because he's already been loved by him. He's not planting churches and being stoned and put in prison for the name of the Lord so that hopefully he can be able to present that to Jesus and say, see what all I did? Is this enough? No. He's doing it because his name has already been written in heaven. And so he is living a life completely out of gratitude of the grace of God. See, the gospel completely and radically changes us. It changes our thoughts, it changes our desires, it changes our dreams our hopes, our goals. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we work. It changes the way we parent. It changes the way we relate to our spouse. It changes our friendships, our relationships. It changes everything. Why? Because we're a new creation in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new is come. 
through the work of Jesus. Jesus changes us completely. And it's because of the saving work of Jesus that we no longer live for ourselves. We, we live now for Jesus. Not to earn his love, but because we've already been graciously loved through the greatest love there is. Now, where does the gospel lead us? You know, there's this, again, there's this common misconception that once I'm saved, I can just continue to go about my life how I so choose to go about it. I can continue doing the same things. I can continue having the same conversations. I can continue watching the same stuff. I can continue doing the same activities. But that's not really the case, is it? Because that misconception comes from this idea that we're saved for us. Right? Like I was worthy of salvation. And so now that I've got it, I can just live my life in the joyful, accepted manner that God accepts me doing the things I want to do. But I'm going to spend eternity with him. But that is gravely wrong. You and me, we're not saved for ourselves. No, we are created for a purpose and we are saved for a purpose. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. We have been saved by grace through faith in the work of Jesus to do and live for Jesus. I mean, if let's let's think about this. The only reason we are even in existence is because God chose for us to be in existence. Does that make sense? But do you know how most of us think? The Lord sure is lucky that I was born. Just in case you miss something, none of this is accidental. You're here. I'm here. And when I say here, I'm not even talking about at the church, but that's part of it. I'm talking about alive because God chose for you and I to be here. Now, that alone should absolutely wreck us because God has created an entire universe. And in the midst of that universe, he puts what astronomers called the pale blue dot when they saw this picture taken by the satellite. And in the midst of this universe is this just little piece of a galaxy called the Milky Way. And in the midst of all of that, we see this little tiny little pin and God chose to fill this earth with beauty and create people and in 
Have you ever just kind of like weirded out and sat back and thought about the billions of people who are alive? Like that you'll never know most of them. You don't know what they do. You don't know how they react. You don't know what they're going through. But that God knows every single one of us. The hairs on our head. I don't even know the hairs on my own head. But God knows all things. And in the midst of all of that, He chose to create you and me. And to allow us to enjoy this beauty that He has created. None of it's by accident. So how dare we think that God is lucky to have us? And when we get saved, we think that it's great because it's this wonderful privilege for us to be on God's team. As in not to think that how great it is that we get to be on God's team, but how great God should feel that we are on His team. We are created by God with a purpose to do the work of God. And once we surrender to Christ, we see that the gospel leads us to live for God's glory through the gospel. Now, what do we mean by through the gospel? This is what I mean. That the message of the gospel saves us and the call of the gospel sends us to make disciples who make disciples. So we understand that it's by grace that we have been saved. I can't do it. You can't do it. Only God can save us. And so out of rejoicing in our lives and out of thankfulness, we live for Him and we declare His glory to the ends of the earth. And we do so by understanding that it's God who saves me and the purpose for which He has saved me is to be His workmanship, which is, in case we miss it, Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations. So the gospel doesn't just save us, it sends us. And here's the good news. Sometimes the gospel is going to send us to a place that's not very dangerous. But sometimes it's going to cause, call us to go to places where we're probably going to die. Where we're going to face severe persecution. We might lose our families, our friends, our jobs, all things that we know. And here's why it's okay. Because none of that's catching God off guard. Remember I said nothing is accidental. For we are His workmanship. Listen to this. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Which what? God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has already... Think about this, okay? That in the midst of this expanse of creation, of all of these things that God has created, He chose to create you and me. And not only has He created us, but He has absolutely prepared our steps for us. 
God does not just create all things and like this big clockmaker, spin it in and just wait for it to screw up. No, he has set it into motion. All things are happening by him, for him. And without him, not anything was made that was made. It is all about Jesus. Do we see that? And in the midst of that, God chooses to save a people for himself. And if that doesn't mess us up to lead us on to go tell this good news to the rest of the world, I don't really know what else will. I want to give you this quote that I come across not that long ago, and it's absolutely wrecked me. The gospel came to you because it was going to someone else. God created us. And he saves us so that he could save someone else through us. How beautiful is that? That we get to play a part in the creator of all things plan. How many of us are here because someone shared the gospel with us? How many of us know Christ because someone stepped out on faith to proclaim that Jesus is good news. Here's what I can guarantee you, that there is no one here that calls themselves a Christian, that calls themselves a Christian, that can deny those, those facts. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Someone told us the good news. Why? So that we could tell someone else. And I want to close with this. That in order for us as individuals and as a church to fulfill our God-given purpose of making disciples who make disciples, we must first have an understanding of the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus saves and that Jesus sends. Let's pray. Our Father, how beautiful, how rich, how glorious are your ways. And why you would choose to save someone like me, I will never know. But I'm so glad you did. May you fill us all with an understanding of the good news that Jesus saves. And as we learn to trust in you, may we understand how that good news has come to us so that we could take it to others. For the glory of your name and the good of your kingdom. May you save your people. In Jesus' name we pray.